run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Hello and welcome to the Freelancer Show. Today on our panel, we have Jeremy Green. Hey. <laughs> Eric Dietrich. Hi, everyone. And I'm Jonathan Stark. Uh, and the topic for today is writing better project proposals. Uh, we've all recently had experience uh, with things going wrong around the house and and tradesmen coming in and giving us impenetrable proposals to fix a project. And I think there are a lot of parallels to the way that we as freelancers often write our proposals. So thought it'd be a fun thing to talk about today. So who's, who's the person with the pool problem? I didn't see which one of you wrote that. Uh, that's me. That's fun, isn't it? Uh, yeah, no, it's not fun at all. Uh, there's, there's a leak in part of the pumping system, uh, underneath a big concrete slab. Um, and right now we basically are not running the pump at all until, well, only sporadically, uh, until we can get somebody out to fix it. And that that's weeks out or hopefully next week if we're lucky. Mm. Yeah. That's a party. Oh yeah. Well, we had, a, we also had a, uh, pool-related plumbing problem last week that uh, was less severe but still annoying <laughs> where we have uh, our kids talk my wife into putting a kiddie pool in the front yard because we're classy like that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, you know, we've got like a garden and stuff out front and a hose that comes off the front of the house. And it's a regular thing during the summer to go out there and, you know, water the garden and the bushes and maybe perhaps hose the chalk off the front walk periodically. Uh, you know, kids draw pictures out there. And so she felt, you know, it's like, fine. You know, th the things always work perfectly. And this one particular day, she fills up the, the kiddie pool and the handle, this sort of twisty dial knob thing on the spigot that sticks out of the foundation just would not close. So she calls me out and the thing just wouldn't budge. <laughs> so like an idiot. So like, and we have this weird hose. It's like a stretchy hose. So like when it's off, and all the water goes out of it, it gets really small, which is convenient for uh, hanging it up and storing it. But in this particular situation, it was really difficult to tell if if it was off or not because it will continue spraying even when the spigot's turned off. So I went in and I got a wrench and I twisted the thing down. And I'm telling you, I had to use like, I had to put some real back into it to the point where I was afraid I was going to rip the thing off the front of the house. And we couldn't tell if it was off or not because the hose was compressing and it was still spraying. So like, <laughs> I unscrewed the hose from the house 
because I was like, well, if I do that, I can tell if it's actually on or off. But now we're in flip-flops and standing in mulch. So now it's spraying full force onto my feet and I'm slowly sinking into the garden. And okay. So anyway, it was a comedy of errors. And I finally got the, uh, I finally got it almost all the way closed, but I still could not, even with a wrench, get it safely turned all the way off. So we called a plumber and this guy comes out and takes a look at it and gives us this estimate. It was like, I won't bother reading. It was just ridiculously full of jargon and overly itemized. And there's going to be a, you know, three quarter inch bib tool and a hose cock and a blah, 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 blah. A whole bunch of stuff I didn't understand, didn't want to understand. Reading it made me feel like an idiot. Uh, it, I didn't know. And, and nowhere on the thing did he say that it would fix it. I mean, I assume it would fix it, but he didn't actually say that. And furthermore, he didn't say how long it would be fixed for or if it was going to be guaranteed in any way, how long it would take to do. All he did was make up basically a parts list that <laughs> told me nothing about about he, he didn't connect the dots between what I wanted, which, you know, was a working thingy. Like I didn't I was even I wasn't even calling it the right thing. And he was, you know, correcting me and insisting that I used his words for everything. It's it's a hose bib, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. The thing is called a hose bib. <laughs> so, you know, it's very it's a very demeaning experience. And 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 really all I wanted him to say was, I can come out, you know, tomorrow. I can you're gonna have to replace this thing. We have to do that. I, I wish he had used my words for it instead of correcting me and saying, you know, we're gonna replace the spigot, which is the wrong word, but the word I used. And because the old one is just old and it, it suddenly broke, we're going to replace the old one. It's going to require a few things. We're going to have to go into the house and, you know, there are going to be some things you need to do. But the long and the short of it is that we're going to replace it with one that won't freeze in the winter. It's going to be easy to operate. Even the kids will be able to operate it. Uh, and it will, it will be back. We'll back it with a 10 year guarantee. You'll never have to worry about this particular hose thing again. And while he was at it, he could have said things like, and we'll come in and winterize your plumbing once a year and we'll do all, you know, we can do all of these other things. You know, I, I noticed when I was in the basement that you don't have this or that, or the water heater is really old. Would you be interested in, you know, this sort of service that we do? Because I am super not handy if you couldn't tell by the story. <laughs> and, and, and we had these conversations, like he could have known this, you know, it wasn't like, um, it wasn't like it would take ESP. But instead of him recognizing that I was a complete klutz around the house and, and offering me <laughs> services that would be perfect for somebody like me, you know, he just, he just made himself like every other plumber. Like I could take his parts list and go to somebody else and say, hey, could you give me a better price on this? Because he described exactly what he was going to do and, and every part that he was going to use. And, and he presented himself like a commodity, basically. <laughs> so... I've in my work, I see lots of proposals, people I've seen, I've seen proposals that were actually that I actually requested. So for work that I want done from freelancers, and I've, as part of my job, review proposals on a regular basis for people who are writing them and for people who are submitting them to my clients. So I read a lot of proposals. And this, this, this um, behavior is certainly not limited to plumbers. Uh, nope. freelancers of all types do this constantly. And I, I think the psychology is partially like, Hey, here's all this stuff I'm going to do. Here are all the activities that I'm going to engage in on your behalf as a way to justify to, they think it's a, a way to justify to the client that a lot of work is going to go into this. And, and I'm really expert at all of this 
all these things, you know, React Native CLI, you know, all this soup, this sort of acronym soup that goes into uh, what I see in these proposals. And you can just imagine clients who, you know, run a shoe store reading, you know, <laughs> information about JavaScript APIs and just like, you know, flipping through, you know, 100 pages of garbage that they can't read and don't want to understand just to look to the very end to find the price and to hopefully see somewhere in there that the thing that they want to achieve will be achieved on some timetable with some guarantee. So, okay, that was a long, that was a long monologue. <laughs> <laughs> what, let me throw it over to you guys. Like, have you experienced this sort of thing with, with freelancers or workmen or, you know, this sort of, this sort of um, client, bad client experience? Yeah. So I have a, Across the board, I was just thinking of the example I mentioned in the chat earlier of it wasn't the proposal per se, but I had um, a sump pump that had, that was going bad. So I had someone out to replace it. And as long as he was doing that, um, we decided that we would have him move some of the uh, appliances around in the basement, the water heater to open up a room and give us some more space. So it wasn't the proposal, but during the course of this, there was a lot of updating on each little detail. It felt like that episode of Seinfeld yes. where Jerry's dealing with the contractor. <laughs> you want this hinge or this hinge? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there were things about the widths of the pipes and I'm going to need to route this up here and hang this. And I'm, you know, I'm, and I actually am fairly handy, but I, I still don't care. All I'm wondering is, okay, so based on this information you're coming to me with, are we still going to be able to put the water heater there? Because if we can, I don't necessarily need to know this stuff. Um, so yeah, with, with contractors and, you know, in reviewing RFPs or, or what have you uh, with freelancers too, it, it sort of like feels to me a lot of times, like there's this fear deeply baked in of being called to the carpet on your pricing. So I'm going to charge you, you know, $1,200 or whatever it is for the price of the job. But like, look, there's, there's all this stuff. So you can't, you can't <laughs> negotiate this price. It's, you know, it's okay. It's like, I get the sense that they fear I'm going to try to nitpick and drive them down on price. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've had exactly the same experience you guys are describing with contractors working on systems around my house, you know, telling me down to, you know, okay, I need to replace this one warning light that's a $2.50 light bulb. And then I need to replace a couple of washers here. And those are each a dollar and, you know, getting just down to that level. And I think I literally said a few times during that interaction, whatever you do, the whole thing worked the way it's supposed to work. Uh, and, I, and I've certainly in the past been on the other end of that of doing proposals poorly and telling people details that they don't care about, uh, at least in words that they don't care about or understand. Uh, I've been on the side of trying to feel like I need to educate clients about using the right words uh, when they really don't care. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember, you know, back in the my days of running a, an agency, there were proposals that we would send out to absolutely non-technical people, you know, we're talking about people that are, you know, the, the founder of a landscape business that is really high end landscaping, but small, you know, a small company that does high end, high dollar work and trying to explain to them what it meant, uh, to use, you know, responsive CSS techniques and, you know, yeah, exactly. It, it was, it was dumb. 
And like, if we would have said it'll work on your phone. Yes. Right. You know, it, yeah. Okay, great. He, he would have been all in on that, but instead we, we got bogged down in the weeds. And I think, I think that the, there's kind of two reasons that, that this comes into play in at least I think two reasons that I think we were getting into this. Uh, one of them was not understanding our customer and also having, I guess, multiple types of customers mm. because we did have customers that did care about it. You know, what are the responsive CSS te techniques you're going to use on that? And in those situations, we were talking to, you know, a technical buyer and we were almost, we weren't technically subcontractors on a role, but it was almost the type of relationship that a subcontractor would have with a more experienced contractor that is, you know, subbing out the implementation work. Right. Uh, and it's mm. important that everybody talk on the same, with the same lingo and the same vocabulary. But when it's not that type of relationship, it's kind of counterproductive to assume that it is that kind of relationship. Uh, and leads to the the situation that you described, Jonathan, where, you know, you feel like you're kind of being talked down to uh, by somebody that's insisting that you're not using the right words to describe the problem that you have. Right. Um, and then I think the pricing thing, it kind of comes from a maybe assuming that it's that same type of relationship and the, you know, what people call the cost plus model where you have to justify, here's what it's going to cost me to get these parts. And so then I'm going to add on whatever my profit is for this job and show you all of that. And, you know, if you're a subcontractor working for a bigger contractor, sure, maybe that makes sense. Maybe that's what you got to do. But if that's not the audience that you're talking to or the customer you're talking to at that time, it's kind of counterproductive and leads to these bad situations that we're describing here. Yeah, the cost plus and then the labor is kind of interesting as you're saying that because I'm thinking – it's probably not so much with app dev or professional services and much with contractors. They almost toss the labor piece in apologetically. Mm -hmm. So here, here are the parts. And, and then, you know, there's the, there's the labor. I got to do this. I got to get paid. Like that's yep. kind of the demeanor they take, which, which I find strange. Cause it's like, well, I mean, of, of course, but like, I don't care about any of this. I just care about having my stuff done. Yep. Yeah. The, the, I love the uh, description that you brought up, Jeremy, between, the two types of customers you worked for that, you know, some of them did understand, you know, breakpoints and CSS and others were, you know, they understood mulch. So mm -hmm. it's like, it's like, look, those, the, the, a lot of people I talk to think they are consultants or they think they are freelancers, I guess. And I guess it's true that they are, but when they're doing staff augmentation types of work, they find it really hard to do value pricing. And I'm like, of course, because the, mm -hmm. the people who are hiring you are already experts at what you do. They just don't have enough hands to do it. So they're not going to sit there and listen to you sort of second guess the decisions that they have already made on an expert basis because they know they know what they're talking about. So if you are, this is a great, it's sort of a, a good not a red flag, but this is a good um, litmus test for if you're working with the kinds of clients who are, are going to lead to uh, more hourly work, or if you want to get more, become more of an advisor and get more strategic engagements and value price your work, you're almost certainly not going to be, be able to sell value priced project work to someone who's, who's as good at what you do as you are. 
You know, it's like, yep. it's like, imagine if this plumber who came to my house to fix the, you know, the hose bib, imagine if he was, if I was a plumber I just, and I just didn't have time to work <laughs> in my own house, then I would read the thing and I'd be like, you got to be kidding me. You're going to charge me five bucks for a three quarter yeah. inch, you, have a, you know, blinker, yeah. you know, your blinker fluid's low. And it's like, <laughs> I would be, I would, I would nickel and dime them or I would be like, you're, you're crazy. Right. So if, if folks who are listening are used to being, you know, having people, having clients who insist on the equivalent of an itemized list of, okay, give me your timesheet. How long did it take you to back up the database? How long did it take you to redo the schema? Uh, you know, how many lines of JavaScript did you write today? And <laughs> if they care about that kind of thing, you're probably working for the, for, for the kind of client who's never going to let you get any kind of pricing leverage. Yeah, that, that sounds miserable too. So there's, there's that component. Like if, if I think back to the early days, I might've had some things like that. That is not a fun way to work because they're not only going to nickel and dime you on price, they're going to second guess everything you're doing, mm -hmm. inject, um, what they think you ought to be doing and so on and so forth. Like <clears throat> Jonathan, as you were talking about that, I was nodding along because I've actually ranted here and there on, on my blog about how an awful lot of people in the software world call themselves consultants mm -hmm. when they're really staff augmentations or contractors, and so in, in the context of writing these proposals, I think there might be a sanity check where this isn't to say that you wouldn't take a staff augmentation gig, but if you're writing a proposal with this level of technical detail because you think that your buyer is interested, you might want to consider that an inflection point. Like, is this really the sort of gig I should be pursuing or should I look for a way to serve buyers that um, have a more disparate set of expertise where I'm actually the expert? Yeah, I totally agree. And so just to follow on from that point, I, in, in a context of a conversation like this, I consider the word expert to be extremely subjective and relative. So mm -hmm. if you are, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty good at responsive web design, but Ethan Marcotte's the expert. So if I'm on a <laughs> job that Ethan's on, he's going to tell me what to do and I'm going to listen. But if I'm going to do a responsive web design for the, you know, dominoes, the, I'm the expert and they, they, they hire me because they don't want to tell me what to do because they know they don't know what to tell me. So they would expect me to do what I think should be done. They, they consider me the expert on this particular thing. So a great way to suddenly be get treated like an expert is to stop trying to attract clients who are better at what you do than you are and go after clients who are great at what they do, but they don't have a clue what you do or how you do it. I should say they understand what you do, but you know, you build websites or you write copy or headlines or direct mail or whatever it is that you do. And they understand that you're good at that. They're going to be good at what they're good at. And you can be the expert and enjoy the benefits that come with that, which are, you know, a lack of micromanagement, uh, the ability to write outcome-based proposals and uh, base those on value rather than the labor that you're going to put into it because they, they're not going to be interested in breaking it down. They just want to make sure their hose isn't leaking. Yeah. If I think of, sort of reapplying this metaphor, if you, you could do a sanity check as this plumber by going out and saying, Jonathan, this is the outcome I'm going to give you. you. You know, your kids are going to be able to operate this thing. It's not going to leak. If you then come back and say, well, what kind of, you know, hose bib washer are you using? To me, if I'm that plumber, I start to think maybe this isn't the best client. And the conversation I have with you is a frank and earnest one of, 
uh, I'm curious why you aren't doing this yourself. You seem to know your stuff. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yeah. Why don't you just do it yourself? And, and that leads straight into a why conversation, which I, I talk about here and elsewhere, where if you're getting, uh, if you're getting any, I mean, that's a great example. I've never even thought of that one. Like that's a, that's a, um, a great why question. If they start to question individual line items, basically, then to push back and say, well, you know, why does it, <laughs> I love that. Why don't you do it yourself? <laughs> you seem like an expert here. Why don't you do it yourself? Oh, no, no, no. I'm just, you know, I, and, and what are they, this software people always say this, software clients always say this. Oh, I know enough to be dangerous. Like that's a scary, <laughs> that's a scary client because they actually don't know what they're talking about, but they want to be involved in the process in a way that is going to be almost certainly problematic if you can't, um, if you can't sort of nip that in the bud or at least build it in as a, as a, a piece of the offering that, you know, you sort of educate them along the way. Mm -hmm. There's a, um, there's a talk I do about, um, a particular, I had, I had an engagement a little while back where, uh, I was redesigning somebody's website. They had a, a desktop friendly website that was, that was mobile hostile. And I gave them a proposal where, uh, the specific desired outcome from the client, not me, uh, was that, it passed the Google mobile test when that was a thing a few years back because this was one of those businesses that lived or died on SEO and the word on the street and the word that this business owner had heard was that if the website wasn't mobile friendly, then they were going to get penalized in the search results. And I said to the guy, um, you know, obviously I'm going to have to redesign the site to a certain extent. It's going to, you know, I'm going to be making changes, visual changes, uh, but you are not going to be allowed to review the design or give any, have any sort of design feedback on it. I'm going to, I'm going to follow best practices for achieving this outcome. And then when we're done, you know, and I'll, I'll basically follow the design of the, the site, but we're not going to have meetings about, you know, make this button a little bigger. Like that is not part of the deal. And when I say this to people, their jaws drop open because they're so used to having like weekly design reviews with the client. And they're like, do you like this blue or that blue? Or should we use this font or that font? It's like, <laughs> you're the expert. Don't, because if you ask the client questions that you're supposed to be an expert about, they're going to give you their opinion. Like if you ask me my opinion about something, I'll be like, well, my opinion is this, but I don't really care. And I think you're the expert, but you asked for my opinion. So there it is. And so like you're abdicating responsibility. You're abdicating the responsibility that your expertise brings with it. The whole reason they hired you, you're giving it up to them and saying, oh, well, you're the expert. You should be making these design decisions. And the designers will say back to me, well, I want them to like it. I'm like, well, was that the goal? Is the goal of the project that the CEO likes the website? Or is the goal of the project to pass Google's mobile test so we don't get dinged in the SEO? Because if, you know, you need to pick which goal it is because you're not going to, you may be able to thread the needle and get both, but why don't you just do the one that's actually going to have a business impact and, the, and ignore the one that is just a distraction? Yeah, and by taking all of those questions to the client, uh, in some ways you undercut yourself, uh, and are, you know, kind of actively working against you being perceived as the expert. And, you know, you do that for long enough, they're going to start to decide, Hey, I'm making all the decisions. This guy's just implementing the stuff. Uh, yep. So we, um, in, in my content marketing business, uh, doing, uh, blogs for dev tools companies, uh, tech companies that are marketing to developers. We have a, a parallel 
And I have a very similar conversation at times to the one you just described, Jonathan, um, where an initial conversation typically with the clients is that I will say something along the lines of, we don't do revisions on the blog posts. So they say, you know, what if I have notes and I want the tone of this paragraph to change or what have you? And I say, we don't do that. You know, you, you get a blog post, we do those, uh, you know, as kind of the basic units of what we're delivering. That also often takes them aback, but it's a very good differentiator from whether we're talking about sort of um, uh, like a patronage kind of relationship versus a concrete goal where we're trying to get you more subscribers, more conversions. Because if it's the subscribers and conversions, they're going to say, you guys have done this with a bunch of blogs. You you know how to build a following, so do that. Versus if we get into these conversations with, you know, whether it's the CEO or whoever it may be, uh, about what they like in a blog post, this becomes sort of a a relationship where there's an unlimited possibility for non-value-add work. So we filter that out in advance, and it um, – you know, informs, we have kind of a stock set of proposals since this is more of a productized service, but it informs the nature of these proposals where what we're really talking about is outcomes and goals that they'll have for their blog. And we're not putting in details about, you know, what the tone of the blog post is going to be and things like that. Yeah. That in, in this example that I gave where I was saying no design reviews, I said that, you know, I said to the guy, you're welcome to, in the proposal, you're welcome to you know, give me feedback if you want, but it's honestly probably a waste of your time. There are better things for you to be doing. And, you know, if, if you send it in, I may take it, uh, I may <laughs> reject it, but it's probably just a waste of everyone's time as in to your, uh, your point, Eric, that's, that would be a waste of time for the, for someone far up in an organization to be like critiquing each individual blog post. It doesn't make sense. It's like, Hey, what are we going to measure? We're going to measure traffic. Okay. I will get back to you every other week and give you the traffic numbers, you know, and if yeah. it's going up, we're happy. And that's actually, you'd be surprised or maybe, maybe you wouldn't be how many people do, you know, these growing organizations at the executive level want this because, Hey, it's my brand. Um, I kind of want to approve and, and be involved in everything that's being said. So we differentiate a lot. You know, do you, you view your blog as a marketing tool or do you view it as sort of a personal expression? If it's the latter, we're probably not a fit. And being able to differentiate like that is just so powerful. Like kind of once you have the confidence there and you can filter out, um, it comes, you know, after some battle scars. So in the beginning, we tried to accommodate everybody and we learned the hard way that these relationships that were of that kind of patronage variety just didn't go well. So now I don't even view that as a lost opportunity. It's kind of a relief to filter that out in the initial um, pre-sales type conversations. Yeah, that's a great example. Yeah. So the title of this episode is Writing Better Project Proposals. So we've probably probably haven't gotten too very specific about that. So uh, Eric, since you were just mentioning proposals, I know they're sort of sort of uh, productized and baked and not customers super customer specific, but could you talk through a little bit what one of those proposals would contain? Sure. The hit subscribe proposals are pretty stock, um, but it really is, uh, it's talking about the goals that we're going to chase, um, you know, and those are customized per client de depending on the pre-sales conversations. But we really keep it as a, at a pretty high level that pretty much anybody in their organization is going to understand. So, um, you know, what are we chasing here? More conversions, um, 
you know, more trial downloads, more people signing up for the email list, some combination thereof. And then we offer a set of guarantees of what the nature of the service delivery is going to be like. So one of our differentiators is real cadence delivery of blog posts, which people can understand. You get a blog post per week like clockwork. You know, we always hit our deadlines. Um, it's things of that nature, things that are um, kind of promising them what they're going to get that we can deliver on and, and goal setting. Um, if I think of proposals, because I'll still do some consulting in the IT management strategy world from time to time, depending on it. Um, over the years, those proposals, uh, I guess, just due to confidence and not needing them as much has really shrunk. So it's kind of similar there where it's like, all right, you know, here's here's the goal that we're going to have this two week engagement. When we're done, you're going to have a roadmap that, you know, tells you what you should be doing in your application portfolio for the next six months or something like that. It's very clear. And I even have somebody who's not um, steeped in what I'm doing, read it over. And I get, you know, quick feedback. Like, do you understand this? Because if not, then you've got the, you know, parts list or whatever from the plumber. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, like your, I, I do the same thing. So I'll talk to, for, for a project that I'm going to value price, I have, i.e. I, not a product I service with a published price, but I'll have a pre-sale, you know, a, a initial meeting and talk to people about the project because first they'll, they'll tell us, tell me all these like sort of low level details about they want this and they want that. And I'm like, okay, great. And then back up, say, okay, why are you guys doing this? Why don't you just do it yourself? Uh, why hire someone expensive like me when there are lots of cheaper options? Uh, why this? Why that? Da, 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 da. And they'll explain all those things. And it, it's, it, you know, I, I'm sure, positive that this leads to a really high close rate for me because I filter out anybody who can think of cheaper options that they're considering. You know, like, well, all right, well, I'm not going to waste my time writing a proposal for you. So that's great. I'm glad I found that out first. So I, I don't write as many proposals as I have leads because it's not always a good fit. So the kinds of things that I'll put in there in a proposal, it's basically just to give people a little bit of tactical information. The structure is basically, I start off with a situation appraisal. And it's like, here, here is the current state of your business. And here are the here's the problem or opportunity that we are all going to collaborate on to, to either capture or fix. Yeah. So something happened. It's, and it's always anybody in the business from, you know, customer service to the CFO or CEO, everyone's going to understand this problem. Big competitor moved into Amazon, moved into your space. Uh Oh, okay. Here's a problem. So we believe, you know, strategically we are in agreement that the way to, to do this is to double down on bricks and mortar because they're not there yet. Okay. That's what we decided to do. We're going to enhance the bricks and mortar experience with, uh, and we think we can do that with an interactive uh, augmented reality app on on the phone. Okay, that's a stupid idea, but anyway, that's like, that's <laughs> the idea. So, okay, that is that anchors the entire proposal. And there, you know, oftentimes I'll try to throw some sort of estimated dollar amount in there, the size of the opportunity, the size of the market, the the potential brand impact of a negative, uh, you know, of a failure, uh, some gigantic number that I can add in there. That's that's credible that's plausible that you know say yeah you know roughly if if we say x and y are true even if even if x and y aren't exactly right we're talking about a 10 million dollar thing here or a fifty thousand dollar thing here or you know an opportunity of this size then i'll say okay here are three ways that we could engage we could work together to capture this opportunity or fix this expensive problem 
and there'll be three three different options. I'll say, you know, my level of involvement will be uh, typically increase from from one to three. The prices will be low, medium, high. And the whole time, you know, I'll talk about, yeah, you know, we'll have a weekly meeting or I'll give you a PDF of the system architecture. You know, there'll be some deliverables in there, things that we talked about, things that seem to be important to them and and I believe are likely to be delivered through the course of the project. But I don't I don't focus on that. The focus in each option will be some description of of what it would be like to work together, maybe a couple of deliverables, but then benefits. The benefits of this option are X, Y, and Z. And there'll be, again, anybody, especially the CFO, will be able to understand these benefits. And I tell people when they're talking to me, you know, I, I regularly, as part of my coaching, review people's proposals before they send them out. So my yeah. student will say, okay, I'm going to write this proposal for this security company. Uh, here's what I've got. And I'll say, okay, great. You know, read through it. And, and, uh, and almost always they leave out the benefits. They say what they're going to do. And even, even after, you know, I've tried to drill it into them, they always forget the benefits because it's so easy as someone who understands the outcomes of the benefit of the, of the inputs. So I'm going to make the, you know, in a mobile world, it'd be like, oh, I'm going to make the buttons on the website finger friendly. That's not an outcome. That's an input. (laughs) That's like something you're going to do. And you need to connect the dots so that even someone who wasn't in the room with you when you had this discussion... You know, if the CEO talked to you or the CIO talked to you and you come up with this proposal and they're going to give it to the CFO to review, that person wasn't in the room there. They didn't discuss all of the intricacies of mobile web design with you. So you can't educate them in the sales meeting. You need in the proposal, you need to say, instead of saying, instead of saying merely, I'm going to make the buttons bigger, you can say, I'm going to make the buttons bigger because that's more finger friendly on mobile devices which is the majority of your traffic now, which is going to lead to more conversions. So you have to connect the dots for them all the way down so that somebody who wasn't even in the room and is completely non-technical and only cares about bottom line things can, can say, oh, well, yeah, more conversions on mobile would be great. And I, you know, if you make bigger buttons or bigger form fields or you, you know, switch the soft keyboard, I don't care, whatever, more conversions on mobile, that's what I want. Uh, what's the price of this option? $50,000, that's the deal. So it's really important. I find myself saying all the time, connect the dots, connect the dots, connect the dots. Tell them in business terms what the business outcome is going to be. Bigger buttons is not a big business outcome. So then, yeah, so these <clears> options, <throat> each one will have individual benefits. Then I will often put a section about, uh, you know, why me? Why didn't you pick somebody else? There are a lot of smart cookies out there. You could have done this internally. You could have uh, outsourced this to Costa Rica. You could have done all these other things. And I know the answer is why they didn't, because I asked him in the meeting, why didn't you outsource it? Why didn't you do it internally? And I'll say, like, why me? Boom, boom, boom. Here are the reasons you gave me why I am the right <laughs> choice. And then pricing terms, you know. So uh, at the end, uh, generally always, with rare exceptions, I, I can't actually think of one, but I'm sure I've made an exception at one time or another. I'll say, you know, payment is due 100% in advance. Oh, I thought of an exception. Yeah. Um, payment is due 100% in advance and uh, I can get started on this date. Uh, this proposal expires in two weeks. So, um, yeah, that's basically an entire proposal. And for me, it'd be like three to five pages tops for, and, and the exception that I have is if the, if the price is really, really high, like, you know, a quarter of a million dollars or something like that, I won't ask for it all up front because I don't want all that money up front. I'd rather have it sort of <laughs> spread out over time. But in general, you know, Anything, anything from 
anything under a hundred thousand dollars, I'm just going to ask for it up front. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's basically it. You don't have to get into field definitions or schema definitions or script lists or <laughs> ERDs or here are the models I'm going to build into the Rails app. They don't care. Yeah, I've seen a lot of proposals over the years that just have all this boilerplate. And I think that everybody involved would all agree upon seeing it that nobody will ever read this in its entirety. Mm -hmm. And I always wonder why things like that get made. <laughs> it's a study in human psychology, I suppose. Like for me, um, I Committees. actually time box. <laughs> yeah. yeah, fair enough. And lawyers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'll, um, I'll time box my proposal writing because I know subconsciously that my lizard brain is going to attach like some cost fallacy to this. So if I spend days writing a proposal, I'm going to be at a weaker bargaining position when I'm, you know, following up with the client or whether they're agreeing to it or not, um, any subsequent discussions mm -hmm. um, versus if I keep it relatively short, there's not going to be that impulse to try to make it work because I've already started investing in this. Oh, that's yeah. an important point. You don't want to get overinvested in the proposal or in the sales process because then you you start to feel you get lost aversion. You really start to want to land the deal because you put all this time into it. Yeah, for me, kind of templating the proposals helps. Like for so for the content business, that's easy. We have you know a very well done template that we just tweak, so we can fire one of those off almost immediately. For management consulting, though, I have a. Um, sort of a conceptual template that's very similar to what, what you described, Jonathan, with um, business opportunity. Um, and then I also do a similar thing where I'm always going to provide two or three options. And I keep that pretty short, pretty readable um, for enterprise clients that are going to want like contractual terms. I tend to set that aside as another uh, whole deal that's separate. Like the proposal is sort of unofficial assent. Um, mm -hmm. And then their contractual things will be separate. So I also don't try to put too much in the way of terms into the proposal, except at the broadest level, you know, payment terms, um, you know, timeline, that sort of thing. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I, the same and, way. And I think you also want to make sure to watch out that the, that process of you preparing a proposal isn't actually you already doing work for the client that you're not getting paid for. And that's pretty easy to do when, uh, somebody comes to you with something that's not entirely scoped down and they don't exactly know what they need. And really your first engagement in those cases should be a road mapping or research and development session, you know, project of some sort. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you want to definitely avoid doing just tons of research in order to write the proposal in the first place. Uh, and I've seen that happen to people and I've, I've been in the situation of, you know, spending a month, writing a super detailed proposal, doing all kinds of stuff that in hindsight was us doing free work for that client, telling them what they needed to do and how they needed to do it. And <laughs> I've got a good one for you. So I talked to someone, uh, this was going back a little while, but I talked to someone who, you know, client asked for a thing. Uh, it was very like, very much a punch list. We want this, 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 we want these features. And the, the developer was like, okay, um, let me put together a proposal for you, but they weren't sure it was actually possible. So they built it to see, <laughs> to see if it was possible. And now they were like way over invested in it. And, and now they're like, well, I already, to me, well, I already built the thing. Like I can't, you know, I might as well just sell it to them. Right. And I'm like, Oh, you know, yeah. and it's like, Ouch. yeah. 
But to Jeremy's point, yeah, if you if there's a huge degree of uncertainty about, um, you know, let's just say it's feasibility. Maybe the thing that they want mm-hmm. is is as the consultant, as the expert, you're not sure if it's feasible. And you're okay. Well, let's start with a feasibility study so that we don't engage in some big project between our two companies that can't can't happen. You know, the technology might might just not be there yet. There's a lot of things that ha- you know in in the mobile space. There are a lot of things iOS that you think intuitively as a developer should work, but Apple just makes not work. So you'd be <laughs> like, oh, it, it should work. I mean, it, there's no reason why it wouldn't work except for Apple's business model. But okay. So sometimes you do have to do, you know, prototypes or a test or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, but absolutely, if you're, if you do that as spec work to hopefully get a gig, it sends all the wrong signals. It's probably a waste of your time. Uh, it creates resentment. It can create resentment. And to give, just to give some time box context, uh, from my, my world of proposal writing, I have for custom projects. I know I have a basic template for what I want to write and it's almost in my mind, it's almost like Mad Libs. Like I can't, I know I can't write a good proposal if I don't get the answers to these 12 questions. So I've got the 12 questions or some version variation of them and I go into the the preliminary meeting to get those questions answered. And when I get the answers, I write them down and then I just plug them into the proposal. It's like it writes itself. So usually for me, there's like an email or two back and forth between some new prospect. We set up a phone call. We have an hour long phone call and then I'll take between, eh, it's usually, I'd probably say average about three or four hours to write the proposal. And this could be for a 10,000, you know, a range from 10,000 to 50,000, or it could be a range from 75,000 to 3 million. It has absolutely, the, the price that I'm going to put on it has absolutely no bearing on the length of the proposal. They're like three to five pages long, regardless of what the price is going to be. And they're super duper outcome focused. So like, what about the tone? Like, uh, I was kind of wondering what tone, hmm. conversational, bloggy, white papery. Um, I try to write the way I talk, which is not, uh, and I don't necessarily recommend that for everyone, but the, but for me it works. So I say I and you in the proposal. So like, you know, you told me in our meeting the other day, you told me that this, you know, this, your business is facing this kind of thing. I don't get into the like, you know, party of the third part BS <laughs> or like, and I don't use we when it's just me. And I don't use Jonathan Stark Consulting Inc. will do this or that and like, you know, put on airs uh, because I'm not going to put on airs in the engagement. I'm just not like that. I'm casual. I'm, I'm relatively casual person. And, and that has never prevented me from working with really big companies. So you know, and, but I don't think it's because I don't think it's because I'm casual that I got hired by those people. And I don't think if I acted, if I was more professional buttoned up type of person, I don't think that would have prevented me or I don't really think it helps one way or the other, as long as you're authentic to the way that you're going to be in the engagement, then you're automatically going to filter out clients who want someone who's more official, let's say, or more legal, more, more boilerplate. But I don't even have like my proposal, it'd be say like, you know, you need to do this. I'm going to do this. Um, like literally, like I say it like that. It's very casual, relatively casual. It's, it's like, I would call it business casual. <laughs> it's sort of, a, it's sort of a polo shirt level of, of casualness. <clears throat> I like that description. Yeah. And then get to the end and it's very, it's very handshake type agreement. I don't have any, I never, 
I, I don't even know what MSA stands for. I don't send any kind of other paperwork. It's just this proposal, sign at the bottom, here's where you send the check. And if they ask for an NDA, and I believe that it's a, a, a actually a real opportunity, I'll sign an NDA. Uh, I, I think I've signed one non-compete in my entire history uh, for a really, really big client. But other than that, and it was an industry that I wasn't, it was a weird, weird industry. So it was highly unlikely that I was going to work with somebody else in that space. But generally uh, I don't get real, I just, I'm just kind of myself at all times. And what that does is automatically filter out clients who would not like me, you know, where, where the project would turn into torture because, you know, whatever they're expecting, uh, expecting a tie. Yeah. Uh, so Jonathan, you mentioned one thing briefly that I think is worth circling back on and discussing briefly, and that's uh, the idea of having an expiration date on your proposals. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a thing that I had not done in the past, but I do now, and I think it's very helpful uh, for several reasons. Uh, one, it it does give the prospect uh, some sense of urgency. Uh, you know, lets them know that this price for this job is not always going to be good. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it definitely helps, you know, when somebody comes back a year and a half later with a proposal, you know, <laughs> hey, let's do this thing now. Uh, you know, if you already had an expiration date on it, it makes that conversation about, well, we're, we're going to have to revisit this and there'll be a new proposal, makes that whole conversation easier. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you, you know, I, I occasionally do give people proposals for things uh, for which they have a hard due date. Uh, you know, they, they're trying to get their app ready for some convention or, yeah, a conference. or the Olympics. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and in those kind of things, I am always very careful to say in order to meet your deadline, you must accept this contract. You know, you must accept this proposal and make your first payment by such and such a date mm -hmm. or, or I cannot guarantee anything, mm -hmm. uh, and make it very clear that, you know, my ability to meet a deadline is dependent on their ability to accept the proposal and make payment in a timely fashion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't I even, like that. I don't even agree to deadlines anymore because because you're 100 percent right to do that. But then they can still mess the deadline up throughout the project unless unless it's something that you're really doing in a vacuum and doesn't really need anything from them. Then mm -hmm. I, perhaps yep. I would make an exception. But to me, that's not really that's almost not even a realistic project without without needing any kind of collaboration with the client like i define a project to be a collaborative enterprise between you know the consultant and the client and if if there's going to be any kind of collaboration then i just flat out won't agree to a deadline and, and if there's something like it's the olympics or whatever then i just don't guarantee it i said well we'll have we'll have something before then but i can't guarantee some list of features or anything like that uh, but i generally shy away from those because it's 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 just too much stress. I can't take it. Um, yeah. I, I theoretically, if you if you were cool with it and you didn't mind that kind of a, an adrenaline rush, then if I was going to do something like that, I would price it such that I could pour resources into the beginning of the project, and I'd probably hire a few people to just dog the client because the client is always the slowest. They're always the slowest part. Well, maybe not yep. always, but. Typically, in my experience, the client is always the bottleneck. It's never the consultant because it's a consultant's full-time job. And, and, and with me, I don't take on a lot of clients at once. So 
it's usually the client gets busy, it's vacation, they can't get back to you. It takes three weeks to give me credentials to SSH into some server. And it's like, come on. So, um, but to, to the expiration point, um, the, the, everything you said is true. Uh, it, it gives them, it gives you like uh, sort of a, a talking point for if they do come back to, you know, they go dark six months later, they come back, okay, we're ready to start. And it's like, well, that, that proposal is not good anymore. And, but I don't, I, I actually put it in there to, to do that. But in the more near term, what it allows me to do is, um, is get, it basically sets my, sets me up for a chain of emails that will happen across, across that two week period if they don't get back to me right away. And yeah. all yeah. of that's predicated on a question that I ask in the sales meeting where I, I need, I ask them, why is, does this need to be done now? Can't we put this off for six months? Can't we study this? You've been putting it off for a year. Why not put it off another year? And if they give me all these reasons why it must be done now, which I won't write a proposal unless I find out why it's urgent. If it's not urgent, I'm not going to do a proposal. If it is urgent, I will do a proposal. I'll put a two-week deadline on it, which is generous for any kind of urgent project. And <laughs> I'll say, hey, uh, you know, a week in, I'll give the, the sort of nice one. Hey, are there anything, any questions I can answer about the proposal? I haven't heard back from you. Uh, you know, I'll check back in a couple of days if I still haven't heard anything. And then a couple of days I'll say, um, I know you, I know this is really urgent for you guys. You said that this competitor was breathing down your neck or I'll, I'll use some, some reminder of the pain and say, you know, FYI, this is going to expire on Friday. And, you know, the farther we get past that deadline, the, the less likely it is I'll be able to, to start or the less likely I'll be able to honor these prices or whatever the specifics of the situation are. But basically mm -hmm. I, I give them a pre reminder or give them a warning signal that these prices aren't good forever because what they might be doing is shopping around and yep. you know, they take the proposal and say, Hey, you know, let's, let's, cause of my prices, I guarantee you my prices are always high. So they're like, okay, this guy gave us a price of, uh, you know, $175,000, which to the client that kind of gives them a budget. Like, well, if, if we were going to give $175,000 to this guy for these results, how else could we spend that much money? Maybe we could outsource it or maybe we could hire, you know, internally. Mm -hmm. And these are all things that I, I basically have challenged them with previously. Uh, so that probably won't happen. But, um, but a lot of times that if they're, if you give somebody a proposal and they don't get back to you at all, there could be shopping it around. So anyway, having the expiration date on there gives you an excuse to keep following up. I, I would probably follow up every, you know, after four days, then maybe after the weekend on the Monday, Hey, did you look at it over the weekend? Just want to let you know, my calendar's heating up. If this isn't going to go through, I've got other opportunities. I'm going to, I'm going to go after that kind of thing. Like not desperate, but like, look, you know, you guys get first word refusal, but I've got other things going on here and I'm trying to slot this in. If you're just yeah. kicking the tires, get out of my face. Yeah. And I can't <laughs> wait on you forever. Yeah, exactly. Put a ring on it. <laughs> Cool. What else? We got anything else on proposals? I'm going to switch over to picks. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Let's see. Jeremy, what have you got? Uh, well, kind of related to uh, proposals, uh, I'm going to pick my service Remark. Uh, that's with a Q. Uh, Remark.io. It's a tool for freelancers and consultants for writing all sorts of documents, uh, proposals, reports, uh, 
even ebooks, that kind of thing. Uh, so hopefully it'll help some people write some better reports or uh, proposals. I mean, yeah, if you like Markdown, you should check out Remark. I love Markdown. I love I love using Remark to sort of get me out of the design business because I'm not a great designer and <laughs> just the typography and everything. It's just like so great. So yeah, definitely plus one there. Thanks. That's all I got. Cool. Eric, you have any picks this week? I do. The first one is is probably a little embarrassing, but I'm going <laughs> to go with it. <laughs> so back in college, um, Blizzard came out with a game back when I was in college called Diablo 2. And I had actually, I was old enough to have played Diablo 1 in college. But anyway, um, I haven't played this game in probably 15 years, something like that. But I just kind of randomly uh, installed it again and started playing it. And I just assumed that there would be like three people on Earth still playing this. Yeah. But there are actually a lot, and and they have been actively doing stuff to the online universe of this game to make it more interesting or to keep it interesting over the last couple of decades. So I was kind of blown away by that. So any of you that are thinking out there that a Diablo 2 nostalgia play might be worth it, I would encourage you to check it out. I was surprisingly... Uh, so now I'm playing this video game, and I don't have time to play video games, but uh, there it is. <laughs> Uh, the other pick that I'll make is sort of a nod to um, one of the credit cards I have. I have a Capital One Visa card. And the reason I'm throwing that out there as a pick is this may be common to all credit cards, but this morning I got um, a notification that there might be fraud. And, and this has never happened to me, but I looked and sure enough, this was not a purchase that I made. And just their experience of getting those charges off my account, shutting it down and getting me a new card within a couple of days was just amazingly turnkey to me. It was like, you know, don't worry, we've got this whole thing. You'll have a new card. You won't have to even like do anything with your vendors. It was just all, um, it was all very well done in my opinion. So I figured I'd, I'd give them a nod. Nice. Um, and that's all I've got for this week. Cool. Well, I'll, I'll follow in the spirit of, uh, I don't have time to be doing this, but I'm doing it anyway. <laughs> the, I, I uh, binge watched season one and season two of Goliath on Amazon, which is a sort of legal courtroom drama slash thriller starring Billy Bob Thornton as a washed up lawyer who gets sucked back into the business to, uh, you know, deal with this sort of big case. And I was like, I cannot tell you how great I, I I'm sure it's not for everyone, but oh man, season one is like a tour de force of awesome writing and acting. It's just the greatest. And, you know, they switched to a new sort of case for season two and season two has gotten mixed reviews. I really enjoyed it, uh, but uh, it was definitely, but season one is just, just unbelievable. Uh, really, really entertaining. So I'd definitely recommend to check that out if you're looking for something to binge watch. And yeah, I'll just leave it at that this week. Just the one pick. All right, folks. So that is it for this episode of The Freelancer Show. We hope to have you join us next week for The Freelancer Show. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to you then. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.
When you start a new project, typically you need things like a domain name, hosting, things like that. When I choose hosting, I pick mine for the options it gives. I like to know what I'm getting and set things up just how I like them. This is why for your projects, you should check out Linode. Linode servers feature native SSD storage, a 40 gigabyte network, and Intel E5 processors. That's all the power you need to run VMs under full control or Docker containers, who doesn't love that, encrypted disks and VPNs. Plus, they have 10 data centers across the world and add-ons like backups, node balancer, and Longview to help you control your server costs. They also offer block storage for your static files, and you can get started with a $20 credit if you use the code FREELANCERSHOW2018. That credit is good for four months on their one gigabyte server. That's a lot of time to try them out and see if they're the right fit for you. That code again is FREELANCERSHOW2018. Also, if you're interested in working for Linode, they're hiring. Head to linode.com careers to see their available positions.